Audrey Hepburn, the role you're going to remember whenever you're alone. She is blind, and she is alone, with a terrible suspicion growing. <laughs> Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez, and we are joined by the amazing Liz Miller, our special guest this week. Liz, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for making this fit into your schedule. We had tried to get Liz on another podcast of mine, and then it didn't work. And then I felt really bad. And so when this opportunity presented itself, I was like, I can write some wrongs. If I recall, the reason that the last podcast didn't work out is one of my all-time favorite reasons, which is that you were nursing kittens. Yes. I'm doing the foster kitten program. Drea Clark is unfortunately ill. Samantha Ellis, I don't really know where she is. Maybe she's hiding out in the dark with Audrey Hepburn. We are, of course, talking about 1967's wait until dark but before we do that Liz for people who don't know you or know your work which they should what is your background in the film criticism community I've been writing about digital content regular content for over 10 years professionally and I've written for a number of different places largely focused on television I also enjoy film coverage a great deal I'm a member of the Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society a member of Gallica another critic society. It's been actually really great being a part of these organizations just because it makes me more engaged with the film world. I've been challenging myself more to try films that I might not normally see in order to feel like I'm more as up as I can be. And there have been some really wonderful surprises that have come as, as a result of that. Had you seen the movie we're talking about today before we discussed it? I hadn't seen it in a really long time. It's a movie I definitely had seen and remembered very fondly. Spoiler alert, my most recent viewing holds up. I'm glad to have had the opportunity to rewatch it and re-examine why it's so effective. And where do you fall on the Audrey Hepburn spectrum? As we've talked several times on this episode, Audrey is either an actress you love or you hate. There are people who hate Audrey Hepburn? Yes, yes, there are. That's so weird. I would never even think to do so. She delivers a very specific kind of performance as a rule. You can definitely see her falling into certain tricks and tropes. That seems dismissive, but you definitely know Audrey Hepburn when you see her, is my point. I've always found her really charming. To hate Audrey Hepburn is to hate movies like Roman Holiday and Sabrina and what are we all doing here if that's the case. I haven't really ever seen her version of My Fair Lady and based on everything that happened with her. You don't and, need and to. That's been my feeling. I am pro-Audrey, 100%. I guess I can see why you would not find her have issues with her as an actor, but I've always found her super charming. 
Well, before we get into that, just a reminder that if you want to support the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We are prepping for our Halloween movie night. We're not talking about waiting until dark, but we are talking about something Halloween themed. If you enter our Lombard level, you can watch a movie on Halloween with the Ticklish Trio. That's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. If you don't want to watch the movie with us, you can also get access to special pins, as well as a bevy of bonus content, including special podcasts, interviews, and the like. My interview with Robert Ackerman, the director of Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows, should be coming soon. A lot of fun stuff over there. Let's talk about Wait Until Dark. This is a film directed by Terrence Young, best known as a director of Hammer Horror Films, based on a play by Frederick Knott, starring Audrey Hepburn, Alan Arkin, Richard Crenna, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., and Jack Weston. It tells the story of a woman who has recently been blinded named Susie, played by Audrey Hepburn. Her husband, while walking through an airport, is asked by a random stranger who is not Sharon Tate, I literally did a double take. I've seen this movie a couple of the times and I thought for about 10 seconds that the character was Sharon Tate. It was not. It was an actress named Samantha Jones. She gives Susie's husband, Sam, played by Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., a doll which is containing smuggled heroin. He takes it home, but unfortunately, Lisa, the doll woman, gets taken by the evil Rote, played by Alan Arkin, who wants the doll for himself. He enlists two lackeys, Mike, and Carlino, played by Richard Crenna and Jack Weston, to go to the Hendrix house to get the doll back, where they encounter Susie and realize she's blind. So they essentially gaslight her for an hour and 47 minutes, trying to get her to give up where the doll is. The problem, she doesn't know where the doll is. Shenanigans involving darkness and some slight ableism ensue. You had mentioned that you'd seen this movie before and hadn't watched it in a while. I am in the same boat. I saw this a while ago, but it's been maybe about five or six years since I saw it. That's after Warner Archive released it on Blu-ray a couple years ago. As a disabled writer, I have a lot of issues. This is a problematic movie in the fact that I can't really complain because it's 1967, so disability was still treated very poorly, but watching it now, it's even harder to watch. And we can get into the specifics of that in a second. I do like this movie. Audrey's really good. I am Team Audrey as well. Alan Arkin's a great villain. And Richard Crenna is a good anti-hero. This is a very stagey film. It takes place in predominantly one location. I like what they do with the atmosphere. But it is a movie that does feel like it was based on a play. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. There's an effectiveness to that. I'm a big fan of movie adaptations of plays that don't necessarily find ways to hide that fact, especially when it's a single location, but still manage to find cinematic elements to it, especially sequences that take place entirely in the dark. I would be interested to see how that gets staged in a theatrical setting because you really can't hit that same level, that same level of blackness. There's enough added to this to make it work, especially because from my perspective, there's something I find charming about a single set location. Sometimes that's all you need. And trying to make things more elaborate doesn't necessarily help the project or the story at all. Yeah, it really makes you feel like you're Susie in as much as you can be her. She's newly 
blinded and she's also recently married. She hasn't been married to Sam for very long. You can tell that she's uncomfortable in the apartment, not just as a woman who is blind, but also as a woman who seems to be living in a place that's not her own. And you get that dichotomy. You see elements of what a lot of directors were working with in the late 60s. There could be a good double feature between this and Polanski's Repulsion in having this lone woman having to fight off some sort of otherworldly issue. Because really, the villains in this movie are bordering on cartoonish. And it takes on this surrealist quality when Alan Arkin is dressing up in costumes like this is Lolita and he's Peter Sellers. And you're sitting there thinking, she can't see. So what does it matter if he's wearing a mustache in one scene and not a mustache in the other? There is this weird camp quality to it that adds this dreamlike nature. That's a really good point about the fact that he's disguising himself. Maybe it's for the benefit of coming and going from the apartment. Who knows? It's a really interesting point about the fact that she's clearly learning to handle the apartment. She met her husband after her accident, which means that she's having to adapt to an entirely strange location where she has no visual frame of reference. I don't know how that configures into the discussion of ableism as we're going to get into. It's an interesting touch. There is a lot of things that just feel very hokey. Alan Arkin is like the big comic villain of this film. He's very good. I like him. I want to say this was one of his earliest roles. He's just so comical. We'll talk about Rote in a second. So I brought up the issues with disability. It's great that we're talking about this and Freaks in the next episode because this movie becomes the landmark of how disability is portrayed in cinema you have Audrey Hepburn, America's Sweetheart, playing a blind woman. As I always tell people when disability is presented in women, it's always a pretty disability, something that you can't physically see. So generally blindness or deafness or mute, something that you don't have to alter the actress's physical look. She can still be pretty, but she's also disabled because those two things apparently aren't mutually exclusive. I knew that was something that was always bothersome to me. But what I really noticed this time around that bothered me, and I'm interested to see if you noticed it, is how much the other characters assume that she is either a child or just dumb. Even her husband, even her husband at a certain point, she's introduced to us by saying that she goes to blind school, which the way that's spoken immediately made me think it's like a child's school. And yes, I know that they're obviously teaching her how to read Braille and things like that. But the way she says it, like a child saying, you know, I went to kindergarten today. She has to be watched by a neighbor girl named Gloria, played by Julie Harrod, who is just mean to her in the beginning and is destroying stuff in her house because she doesn't like that Susie's being mean to her. I'm sorry. On the totem pole of life, there's no excuse for you messing up a blind woman's house knowing that she's going to have a hell of a time picking all of it up. And even something small, like her dropping something on the floor, and she asks her husband to help her figure out where it is. And he says, no, you need to find it by yourself. And you think the addendum is like a big girl. And I was just like, there's a difference between having her learn things that she needs to learn to be self-sufficient and just being rude. You could tell her where it is. Or better yet, you could pick it up. That's polite. That has nothing to do with her being blind. That's just politeness. So there's this whole level of 
childish coddling before the villains even show up. And I'm not sure if that's progressive or not in how the rest of the movie ends. Is it progressive that she's able to get one over on these guys and show that she's self-sufficient? I don't even know if the movie's saying that. How did you look at how the non-villain characters treat her and how the blindness is utilized before the villains show up? Okay, I'm going to give Gloria a pass because... It's pretty fair for a 12-year-old girl, especially one that the script establishes, has a pretty terrible home life. She has to wear glasses now because the kids are making fun of her. Like, I have a lot of sympathy for Gloria. Gloria acting out is fine at the beginning, especially because I actually really enjoyed the moment where she and Susie hug on the floor and are just commiserating with each other. Though that does also speak to the fact that the most sympathy that Susie gets in this movie is from a 12-year-old girl. Not infantilizing her, but definitely placing her on a child-like level. Sam, on the other hand, screw that guy. <laughs> understand the idea that Sam wants her to be self-sufficient, but at the same time, the way it is handled within the context of the story makes me not like him at all. If we're talking about her being put in this patronizing place, it's all largely driven from him. He's not encouraging, he's basically demanding that she be self-sufficient. It's not coming from within her. She's only been blind, what, a year? Of course, she needs help. She needs time. She needs to go to blind school. The treatment of her by her husband makes me, I wanted her at the end to just leave him. The fact that the film ends with her not needing to be rescued. She ends up basically rescuing herself. She uses her very strategy. She plants things for her to use later. The way in which she fights back at the end really does help address what you're talking about. But at the same time, it doesn't make up for the fact that the movie ends with her, the loving embrace for her husband again. I would ask, does she save herself or does she just get lucky? Because the way things seem to be going in that final fight scene, she hides behind the fridge door pretty much prepared to die and it's only in the 11th hour that the cops show up with the husband so i always get a little perturbed that it just almost seems like luck the reason she survives is not because the cops come in and rescue her the reason she survives is because she outlives roke they aren't hauling him off her and putting him in handcuffs he's dead because she killed him if that was different she's clearly in shock she's clearly traumatized they have to pull her out from behind the fridge i don't feel like it's luck i think she certainly got lucky in a couple of respects but there's enough that the movie does to indicate that she's trying to be smart she's trying to figure out the best way to survive this experience a nice shift something that a lesser movie would have done less with i do enjoy that we both agree that ephraim zimbalist jr is the worst husband and really all of the problems in this movie could have been solved by him being less terrible. <laughs> An attractive women hands him a doll and it really screws things up for his wife. The movie is a film that you wouldn't really think would lend itself to an hour and 45 minute movie. It's written by Robert Carrington. This was only his second feature. He had done a film called Kaleidoscope the year before and he wasn't ever really a big name. He only did 10 credits in his writing career. His last film was in 1989 and it's actually an adaptation of this movie called blind witness with victoria principal 
God, that's a future Doubled Features episode right there. Terrence Young was best known as a director of James Bond movies. He did Dr. No, Thunderball, From Russia with Love. I erroneously said he was a Hammer horror director. I'm actually incorrect. He was known more so for doing serious action films. This is not a serious action film. It's funny, he did this and the film Mayerling, the year later, and that is a serious, heavy drama period piece with Omar Sharif. You can just see him being like, maybe I should try something different. And then that didn't work, and he was just like, nope, going straight back to the action films. This movie does some good in the sense of having her be a disabled woman, because this is a film that almost has her as the Kevin McAllister, coming up with ways to prove that she is not crazy that something's wrong. This is considered Audrey Hepburn's only horror film. Do you consider this a horror film or a suspense film? I would say suspense thriller. I tend to feel that horror films are definitely exceptions to this. It needs to be even more heightened than simply whatever Alan Arkin is doing with his performance, which I actually really enjoy, but I definitely agree is pretty over the top. Horror for me has a different definition. I do understand why you would place it near there, especially given other stuff. It's just a really solid thriller. I wouldn't consider Ready or Not a recent release to be necessarily a horror film. Ready or Not, there are elements that are definitely pushed into the horror realm, but for the most of it, it's pretty similar to this, actually. Women in peril, single location, suspense action. I love that you brought up Ready or Not, because I hadn't really thought of that movie as being similar to this until you literally said it. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. I consider this a suspense thriller as well. I don't really consider it a horror movie, although Drea did pick this, so maybe Drea would be able to better explain it. The horror is derived from the fact that it's every woman's horror story being terrorized by these guys that have this ability to walk into your house, that gain your trust, that make you think that something is wrong when it's really not, you don't know who to believe. And paranoia, especially female paranoia, was really popular in the late 60s. If you look at this, Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, which is a movie all about paranoia, with a new mother who doesn't really know what to do and believes that her doctor is telling her the right thing. Meanwhile, she's not. And you have a lot of single location thrillers with women, stuff like Woman in a Cage, which I think is the movie with Olivia de Havilland trapped in an elevator. But you got a lot of these movies where it was all about women being told that something is right, but knowing deep down that something is wrong and not having an ally to tell you that you're correct. I don't know why that was so popular. Maybe it was because of the rise of second wave feminism and women really becoming more self-sufficient. As somebody who is a disabled woman and always gets told that, oh, your fears are unfounded, there is definitely a horror element to watching Susie interact, especially with someone like Mike, who, if we're looking for good guys in this movie, Mike is about as good as the bad guys get. He genuinely does not want anything bad to happen to Susie. He's just a bad guy who is involved in this plot to get this doll. Even then, when she realizes that he's in on this, that he's the one who's also lying to her, it really hurts her because she has no ally. She has no one to say, you know what, something is wrong. It's not until Gloria shows up that they can actually try to put this plan into motion. Maybe it is a horror movie for women. It's funny. 
you should ask that because horror movies for me are about extreme or unusual circumstances. And there's nothing that really feels unusual or extreme about this movie. A woman being terrorized in her home by a couple of strange men, that just feels it's a home invasion story. Yeah, it's not unusual. There's something terrifying about the mundanity of it, how easy it is for these men to take advantage of her and prey on both her disability and her trust. That's the horrific thing. The thing that makes Mike such an interesting character in this conversation is that he's earning her, her trust to the point where he ends up becoming sympathetic to her and tries to blow the whole deal. The fact that he goes through that change makes him much more human character than Rote, and as a result makes Rote that much more terrifying because of that betrayal. This is a film where the three characters, you are introduced to them before you're introduced to the Hendrixes. They walk right into Susie's apartment. That's the first violation. They just walk in like they own the place. Carlino starts eating their food. And they naturally assume that it's because this is the house that Lisa, the woman who has given Sam the doll, this is where she is staying. But when Roach shows up, you realize that he's really just used the apartment to dump her body and look for this doll. That's really fascinating to me. And I don't want to get Freudian, but I feel like I got to get Freudian here. This movie's all about trading sacred spaces. It's first the apartment, and then it's the safe. Because they believe the Hendrixes have this giant safe they're using as a table. They assume that there's something in it, almost like Hitchcock's MacGuffin. The doll has to be in there. And Susie keeps telling them, no, there's nothing in there. It's just something that was left over from the woman before. The end culminates with Rote deciding to go full on rape and try to violate her. So you get this progression of violence that starts with just these three guys thinking that this is an apartment they have every right to be in. The violation of that is a big one. Last night, I actually had a moment of fear heard some noise in another area of my apartment. I thought, oh God, is someone in here? I ended up double locking the door just out of this moment of pure terror. And that's just the idea of someone being in your house that isn't invited, that kind of stranger danger. There's something to that. So many horror films are about that sort of violation. Like you brought up Rosemary's Baby earlier, a very massive version of that. The level of violation varies based on the level of trust and connection. And maybe that's why I find Mike such a disturbing character, because there is that level of trust with him. Similar to how in Rosemary's Baby, the most horrific element of it is the fact that her husband goes along with it, with the whole scheme, and he's responsible for everything that happens to her. You also see moments where the various villains are hiding in plain sight, but because Susie can't see them... There is this weird, it goes back to that almost comical nature of this movie, because I'd be very interested to see how the audience responded in 1967 if they thought some of those moments were humorous, of them just laying against the wall and hoping that she doesn't see them. This movie doesn't turn her blindness into a spidey sense, which you often see in movies about blind people. Everything else is heightened, and they can smell things differently, and they have very acute hearing. She definitely knows that somebody is in the apartment, but that doesn't give her daredevil-like sonic powers to figure out where people are. There is something that almost becomes mean-spirited about how the villains treat her. That goes back to that belief that she's less intelligent. There's that part where Rote is teasing her with the scarf 
it's hard to watch because there is that macabre I can bully you because you're weaker than me element to it. But even in the moments where characters are hiding in plain sight or trying to do things, it takes on this added air of villainy because they know that she can't see. Absolutely. I was looking at the IMDb trivia page for this film. There are a number of quotes on it about how Alan Arkin talked about the Oscar nominations he received for his early major film roles. Asked if he was surprised that he was overlooked for Wait Until Dark, his second movie, he replied, you don't get nominated for being mean to Audrey Hepburn. And that goes doubly so for Audrey Hepburn in a vulnerable place like this. It's interesting you mentioned the concept of Spidey sense, because I do like the fact that she is observant enough to pick up on the fact that Rote wears the same pair of shoes in his multiple characters. That's exactly the right level of acknowledging that she's pretty observant as a person without pushing it to unrealistic levels. Alan Arkin is right. You don't get an Oscar nomination for being mean to Audrey Hepburn. This came three years after she had done My Fair Lady. And that's such a big movie. And people forget that once she married Mel Ferrer, there was this push to make her this artistic leading lady to transition her from being a movie star into being this serious artist. She did comedies and relationship dramas, but this was a serious, serious drama for her. This was probably the most out there of all the films that she did in her career. She never did anything like this before or after. Watching her play this woman who is terrorized, it's a long way from Holly Golightly or Sabrina. It's why Wait Until Dark is always a good litmus test for people who are interested in Audrey Hepburn because it is just so different from anything she did. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's still, as we talked about earlier, very recognizably an Audrey Hepburn performance. The thing I find fascinating is that this movie is really well received, was shot at the same time her marriage was falling apart, and she doesn't make another movie for years after this which is not necessarily how you would expect someone to follow up on one of their biggest roles, but she wanted to be more with family. It was almost 10 years that she took a break after this, and then she came back and did Robin and Marion, which was this old-fashioned period drama based on a very well-known story. She did a couple more movies. She did go back to working with Terrence Young in 1979. She did a film called Bloodline, with Ben Gazzara and James Mason, which is a crime drama with her being stalked by a murderer. And I have not seen that, but I'm very interested to see if it holds any commonalities with this movie. And then after that, she did Peter Bogdanovich romantic comedy in the 80s and ended her career in 1989 with the fantasy romance Always, directed by Steven Spielberg. This and Bloodline might be the two darkest movies. No surprise, they're directed by the same director. She's fantastic in this. It's actually really frustrating that she was nominated for an Oscar for this, but she did not win, which we've talked about the Oscars of 1968. Everybody could have been winners. She was nominated alongside Anne Bancroft, Edith Evans, and Faye Dunaway. Liz, do you know who won Best Actress in 1968? You want to hazard a guess? I literally looked it up as you were talking about it. I totally cheated. Catherine Hepburn, you're not wrong about this category. It is intense, especially because it's not just an amazing array of actors. It's Anne Bancroft as 
Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate, Faye Dunaway as Bonnie Parker from Bonnie and Clyde. It's a shame Audrey Hepburn didn't win, but also that's insane competition. No, I totally agree. We said the last time we brought up the 1968 Oscars that everybody just deserved an award that year. It's amazing because 68 is often considered the Oscar ceremony where old Hollywood finally crumbled. It couldn't deal with the new school of filmmaking. But if you look at the Best Actress nominees... You have so much of the old guard, and then you have Faye Dunaway, and then you have Audrey Hepburn right there in the middle, because she represented in the 50s so much of what was changing about Hollywood at that time. And yet here in 68, she still seems not confined to one world, because she still feels like she's representative of studio-era filmmaking, but... Her role in this movie and her acting was always so modern that she seems like an actress who was perfectly suited for the late 60s. So it's so unique that she's included here in a ceremony where it's often considered the day everything changed. She, in general, it speaks to a line she generally does stride. Her decades really were the 50s and the 60s. And that's such a weird transitionary period of time for film in a general sense. It makes sense to have her included in this category if we're looking at it that way. I'm just amused, scanning forward just a little bit, complete tangent, but I'd forgotten that Maggie Smith has an Oscar and that she won it in 1969 for the prime of Miss Jean Brody. <laughs> because right now, as we record this, Downton Abbey kicks some serious butt at the box office this weekend, beating out Brad Pitt and Sylvester Stallone, meaning that Maggie Smith is a bigger star than Brad Pitt or Sylvester Stallone. That's just logic. That's just science. We've talked about Alan Arkin a little bit and Richard Crenna, but I do want to talk about them before we wrap things up because you have Richard Crenna, who was working in film and television during the studio era. He did work in the dwindling studio system. Most people know him as an actor of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then you have Alan Arkin, who definitely inhabited the late 60s style of filmmaking. Richard Crenna just plays this guy as possible if Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. was out of the way, that him and Susie would get together. He's the nice guy-ish. And then you have Alan Arkin, who is, that I brought up Lolita. Lolita had come out by 1962, and Alan Arkin draws so heavily from Peter Sellers' performance. And I mentioned the costume changes and the vocal tics. He has this convoluted backstory about Lisa being his wife. I don't really know his intent, but it's just one final stab at Susie when she doesn't need it. He implies that Lisa and her husband are engaged in this illicit relationship. So it's not enough to just try to get the doll. He also wants to leave this broken marriage in his wake. He's just the epitome of evil. When they finally have that moment where she takes the lights out, she tries to leave him in darkness. It just becomes this one-up of things. He has matches, so she starts throwing gasoline around, and then he has a knife, and she stabs him, and then there's rape involved. It's just this constant Roadrunner Coyote series of one-upsmanship where they are, for a brief moment, equals. Even though, as women watching this and always knowing how these stories end, he always seems to have the upper hand. I said at the beginning, I really enjoy what he's doing. Does it belong in a more subtle film? Probably not, but I don't think this film would be considered a subtle film or should be considered a subtle film or needs to be a subtle film. There's something to this performance. And Alan Ark essentially play multiple characters and he has such fun with it. Sometimes that's all you want 
it's just enjoyable. And it culminates with a scene that I know has been on many a terrifying moments list where you assume that Susie has gotten out and she's going to be fine. She races to the window and he makes that grand balletic leap out of the shadows. I'm not surprised by it anymore, but I just love how it's not a jump scare. Like a modern jump scare would make sure to place the camera in a deliberate angle so that you would see. It just really almost seems spontaneous. Sometimes those moments can be even more scary. Like if the camera is not preparing you to be scared. When you're watching a scene of a car driving down the street and it's framed so that you can see through the driver's side window. Oh no, of course a car is going to come smashing into the car that way. When you have that shot, there's something to be said for the more unexpected moment. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we close it out? No, this has been a really fun discussion. It was really good to talk about the way this movie treats her disability, how that reflects upon her as a character, because that isn't something I'd given a ton of thought to before. And it's important, especially these days. Right now, there's an increased movement towards making sure that people with disabilities are getting cast in these sorts of roles. Have you seen that John August is trying to cast a new film he's working on, and he is determined to find a blind girl in her teenage years who can play this part? And, and he's flat out said, if I can't find a blind actress for this role, I will not make this movie. And so he's doing like this big open casting call anyone can submit. When he put out the call, somebody immediately responded with, oh, there's this actress who was in a recent episode of Doctor Who who'd be perfect. She was, in fact, really good in that episode of Doctor Who. So who knows? The point is, is that these days, you don't need to ask Audrey Hepburn to play blind. There's increased momentum towards really finding great actors to play these roles. Wait Until Dark is not a movie that I often say is the worst of the worst when it comes to disabled representation. I can see why Audrey Hepburn wanted to do it, and I could see why they would want Audrey Hepburn to do it. Late 60s, it was still a very easy route to an Oscar nomination to play disabled, play blind. It got Jane Wyman her Oscar and Johnny Belinda, so it's got a track record. I get that. It's a movie that does attempt to look at the minutia of being blind, such as her going to the blind school, her using Braille, her trying to figure out how to navigate her apartment. It's not as good as A Patch of Blue. I like A Patch of Blue a lot more than this, although that's a very different movie, the very different message, and both actresses are not blind. But this one doesn't make me mad. I enjoy this movie for what it is. Numerous movies have borrowed from this since. If you've seen the movie Hush from a couple of years ago, the Mike Flanagan film, this movie is very similar to that. It's a popular film. It's a popular trope. And it still has some enjoyability, even if I have to compartmentalize like, okay, it's problematic, but I enjoy it. And that's really what I would say overall. I enjoy Wait Until Dark in spite of its issues. Audrey Hepburn's great, as is Alan Arkin. The plot gets a little silly, but it's definitely worth a watch. And if you have not gotten the Warner Archive Blu-ray that they released a couple years ago, definitely go see it. Liz, what are your overall thoughts on Wait Until Dark? Do you recommend it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially for being as it is of its time. I like what you just mentioned about the minutia, because that's really cool. Audrey Hepburn doesn't make her first appearance until surprisingly late into the movie, like not until maybe 15, 20 minutes. But I really enjoyed the fact that the camera just follows her in a wide shot as she walks into her apartment. And you see her very carefully and deliberately putting things where she knows she can find them later. She has a place she puts her purse. She takes off her gloves one by one and puts them in each jacket pocket. It's the sort of specific thing that 
makes the viewer really appreciate what daily life is like for someone with her disability. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on Wait Until Dark, Audrey Hepburn, Disabled Representation. You can email your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read it on the next episode. And if you're interested in buying Wait Until Dark and want to help out the podcast, you can do it through our Amazon influencer list, which is at amazon.com slash shop slash journeys underscore film. Anything you buy through that gives us a little money back into the account. And you get to look at a list of great movies worth buying and books as well. Once again, I'd like to thank Liz Miller for joining us on the show today. Liz, where can fans find and get in touch with you, read your work online? You can find me on Twitter at Lizlet. That's L-I-Z-L-E-T. I also am contributing a bunch of different places right now. You can go to LizShannonMiller.com. Links to all my latest stuff, including my Muckrack account, which is where most of my freelance stuff gets focused on. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can visit my official website where I discuss classic films regularly at journeysandclassicfilm.com. But that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can contact the podcast at ticklish underscore biz. And you can send your emails, questions, comments at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. If you want to learn more about upcoming episodes and hear exclusive content before anyone else, then once again, consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We are prepping our next movie night, which is going to be on October 20th for our Lombard level peeps. It's going to be a lot of fun once we figure out how we're actually going to stream it. We also have access to special pins that we've made and two bonus shows. William Viviani and I talk about how old Hollywood talks about itself with Based on a True Podcast. And Adam Kautzer and I talk about the movies Hollywood makes again and again over a double feature. So there are two entirely new podcasts that you can listen to over at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, as well as our TCM Classic Film Festival audio and interviews. So check it out. And next time, Drea and Sam will be back next time to go even further back, looking at a totally different disabled story. We are going to be looking at the 1932 classic Freaks. So that'll be next time. (laughs) 